Meet Laura. She was diagnosed with PCOS in her 20s and was experiencing acne, weight gain, hair loss, and irregular cycles. She started taking the birth control pill as that was the solution her doctor recommended and many of her symptoms actually subsided, so she was very excited. She was on a pill for about 10 years, but then she started reading about the potential negative effects of the pill and didn't want to stay on it for a very long time. Plus, she knew she wanted a family in the next few years, and between everything, she decided to get off to give her body a break, so to speak. Well, balance was not what she got. Within a month of getting off, her acne came back, she gained seven pounds, started having trouble sleeping, and started seeing hair loss again. She figured it must just be a transition and things will get better. However, three months later, her skin was even more broken out. And on top of that, she never got her period back. She waited a few more months thinking as soon as her period comes, all of this will probably go away. But three months later, still no period. After not getting anywhere with her doctor, she was ready to just go back on the pill to make all of this go away. But she knew that would just be a band-aid. And that's when she reached out to me. This is an issue I see often, and there's so many underlying factors. We did more blood work and saw that her DHA sulfate was elevated and her testosterone was also on a little bit of a higher side. I knew we needed to do some balancing in exactly where we were going to start so that this doesn't become another health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Laura's struggles with PCOS. Join me today to talk more about this is Dr. Erin Kinney. Dr. Kinney is a naturopathic doctor, as well as a prominent speaker. In her private practice and her workshops and retreats, she helps women rebalance their bodies so they can achieve optimal health and become their best selves. Dr. Kinney, I'm so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we're talking about PCOS today, and PCOS is so common these days, but for so many women, it's a diagnosis that comes with little explanation from conventional medicine and I think even less direction on natural support and reversals of this condition. So just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, can you first tell us what does PCOS stand for and what does it mean? So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And in from my viewpoint, it typically means there's a major imbalance in hormone production, hormone breakdown, and typically there's something going on with blood sugar. So what it typically means, someone with textbook PCOS will typically have a high level of what we call androgens, which are the hormones that um, are in the testosterone or androgenic pathway. Women have typically estrogen, progesterone, we make a little bit of testosterone and there's some other hormones thrown in there. But oftentimes what will happen in these women is they will, they either one won't get their period for a couple of reasons and, or they will make multiple um, they'll get cysts in their ovaries from ovulating too frequently or are not ovulating enough. So there's there's a major, and like I said, there's a spectrum of PCOS. So I find some women will be diagnosed with this and they will have a textbook image. They'll have 
you know, elevated blood sugar, they'll have difficulty losing weight, they'll have abnormal male hair growth patterns, um, they p- won't get a period, problems with infertility. And then I'll have some women that get regular periods that maybe just have a little bit of hormonal acne and have been diagnosed with PCOS because they have multiple cysts going on in their ovaries. So there's a very wide range. So if you've been diagnosed with this, I sometimes like to sit down and tell women that, okay, just like put a, put aside everything that you've been reading about on the internet, because just because you've got this diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean everything that you had. There's it's, it's very different for every individual woman. And that's most of the medicine that I practice is very patient centered or patient focused. So we need to find out what is particularly going wrong with their hormones. Does that make sense? It does. Now, as for root causes of it, I know you mentioned blood sugar and hormonal imbalance. Are there any other root causes that you find are important here? So I often will end up treating patients' livers. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned briefly that, you know, there's our bodies will make hormones. And then especially women, when we have cycles, you know, the beginning of our cycle, our body will produce estrogen. And then that typically is what will spur off ovulation. And then estrogen levels start to decline. And the declining of any hormone, what has to happen is that hormone has to be broken down by the liver. And so in some cases of PCOS, certain hormones get made. However, they don't get broken down properly. And so, and this could be because the liver is either sluggish or sometimes it has to do with the lymphatic system. The body is not detoxing properly. So I often find that that's a major root cause in PCOS is that the body is not getting rid of the hormones that it needs to. This could be the case with either the androgenic hormones, with estrogen levels being too high. Typically, it's those two that the liver has trouble breaking down. Um, And in today's world, we're exposed to so many hormones, whether it's through food or when you spray a perfume on you or you use Bath and Body Works lotion all over you, you're, you're getting what we call estrogen mimicking um, substances, and that can get into the body. And that's something else that the liver has to break down. So our livers do so much in terms of detoxing. And if the liver is super, super busy getting rid of all the toxins that you're exposed to on a day-to-day basis, sometimes it might not have enough energy to get rid of the excess hormones, which can then leave you kind of in a hormonal imbalance. So I find that in a lot of my PCOS cases, that ends up being one of the root causes. I am so glad that you're mentioning this because I think this is even less talked about than some of the other things. And I definitely want to get into that much more. Now, I wanted to ask you first, in terms of testing, if someone maybe has some of the symptoms that you mentioned, like weight gain or acne or missing periods, and they want to get tested, what would they need to do? Only because a lot of people are missed for this. And so what are some of the best tests in your opinion? Well, so this kind of depends also on whether the woman is cycling or not. So typically... I find I'll go through the best tests, but there's also a timing of when you get the tests done because our hormones are changing throughout the month. So I will typically test estrogen or estradiol. I'll test depending on where a woman is and in her years, whether she's in her twenties, thirties or forties, I sometimes will test uh, estrone, which is what starts to build up higher when you're heading towards menopause. Um, so the estrogens, we want to test progesterone. We want to test testosterone. We want to test androstenedione. We want to test DHEA, which is a little bit of a precursor to some certain hormones. I always test morning cortisol. I test insulin. We'll test blood sugar. And then obviously just regular liver enzymes. However, you know, if you're someone who has been diagnosed with PCOS and maybe you're still getting a period, but maybe it's coming every 40 days, I would like to 
I usually will test people in two parts of the cycle. One, I want to test kind of in the beginning part of their cycle to see what's going on with their ovulation hormones. Are they, so we also want to check FSH and LH. So I want to see what those hormones look like. And then I also like to test kind of towards the end of the cycle to see is the ratio of hormones changing? Because the beginning half of a, of a normal cycle, estrogen is the dominant hormone and progesterone is typically low. In the second half of the cycle, progesterone is supposed to be the dominant hormone and estrogen should be low. So we want to make sure that those ratios are flip-flopping appropriately. Typically, if there's an androgenic hormone issue with testosterone or androstenedone, those hormones aren't going to change too much throughout the cycle. But we want to we want to look at that as well. Is the testosterone higher in the first half of the cycle or in the second half of the cycle? So I typically am testing my women, you know, beginning of their cycle and end of their cycle. Good. And that timing may depend on, you know, how long their cycles are. So that's really, really helpful. So let's actually go into a little bit more detail just so that... Um, my listener can really understand what they need to ask their doctor to do in case they may not be able to see you or myself or someone that understands. Yes. So when we look at estrogen, and you mentioned you test that in the beginning of the cycle and then towards the end, um, as well as progesterone, and you mentioned about ratios, are there specific ratios that you like to see or are there specific actual numbers that you like to see for each? Only because a lot of us know that the lab rangers are so wide, it's a little bit hard, I think, to go by just what the lab rangers say. Yes. Well, so this is tricky to answer in a in a question like this because all, all the labs have slightly different how they're measuring it and what the reference ranges are. But so when you typically when you test hormones, it will show you, okay, estradiol is 270 is your result. And it'll say, here's what your estrogen should be if you're in the follicular phase, which is typically the first 10 days of your cycle. And then it'll show you, here's the range that your estrogen should be in your ovulation phase, which is usually from day 10 to day 15 or 16. And then it'll show you, here's the range in your luteal phase, which is typically the second half of that cycle. So oftentimes, and so again, this is why where timing is super important. I'll get people that come in and they'll say, oh yeah, I was told my estrogen was normal. And I'm looking at their estrogen and I say, okay, well, your estrogen is this number, but where were you in your cycle? And they're like, oh, I was on day 27 and their estrogen is like 500. I'm like, oh my goodness. Your estrogen should not be that high. So it's here, it's, it's really a timing thing. And now this can get tricky with PCOS because sometimes people aren't having regular periods. So I understand that this it's a little confusing here because sometimes you might not know when your next period is going to be. So um, there's a little bit of a guessing game going on. So typically my first focus on someone that is coming in to see me with PCOS is one, we have to get the liver working. We have to open up the routes of elimination. So that means we have to make sure you're urinating enough, which typically means hydration. We have to make sure you're having bowel movements enough and we have to make sure that the liver is, is working. And we can, I usually do that with herbs and certain specific nutrients that help the liver do what we call phase two conjugation, which is where it actually pulls out hormones. Um, I know I got a little bit off topic, but I want to focus on making sure that they are ovulating. So typically when I'm first having those numbers checked, the FSH and the LH, which is follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, we want to make sure that those numbers, and sometimes in PCOS, those numbers will look like someone is in menopause or perimenopause. Those numbers will go up elevated. And then if you're in your twenties and those are elevated, it doesn't mean you're having early menopause. It just means your hormones are slightly out of balance. So, um, so I usually use some things to help to jumpstart ovulation because then once you ovulate, then you should get a period two weeks later and then we can start. Does that make sense? Like then we can, it does. Then we can test further to see what's going on. So of course, so for everyone listening, just so that they have an idea, where would you like to see FSH and LH typically? So if we're in that follicular phase, um, or in the ovulation phase, you know, they, 
FSH is going to be slightly, it'll be between maybe five and 65. We don't want them to be too elevated. Does that make sense? Or too suppressed. So so if you see it, say, over 12 or 15, then are you assuming they're not ovulating or is under like 50, let's say, still okay for you? Under 50 is still okay. I mean, it, I feel like these numbers are, it's kind of hard to look at one specific number and have that be the key to the, in this type of, this type of case. I, I like to use the analogy that when it comes to hormonal balance, you have, it's almost as if you're watching a ballet right? So a, a, a cycling female is, has this beautiful orchestra, beautifully orchestrated ballet going on of every single hormone has a specific part to play and it has to do with all the right timing, all with, you know, with the music and you could have, and typically with PCOS, there's several, several dancers that are dancing offbeat, not to the music, wearing the wrong costume. And so we can isolate those. But my point being is that you know, for those of you guys listening, it's usually not as simple as, oh, FSH is out of range and we need to fix that. Typically there's going to be multiple things. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to give you a, and this is what I think. And I I have a lot of patients with PCOS that are so frustrated because they've been diagnosed with this and they have a lot of symptoms and they're on Google and they're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need my numbers to look like? And I sometimes, I mean, I want to look at their numbers, but I, I want people to focus a little bit more on symptoms. Like I said, the, the first thing we want to try to do is to get the body back into having a regular period. Because the other important thing when you're a cycling female is you have to remember every time you have a bleed, your body is detoxing hormones. You're getting rid of estrogens. So when you, so this is kind of, can I curse on this? Sorry, this is kind of the, the shitty part about PCOS, <laughs> particularly when you don't get a period, is that your hormones start elevating, right? And if you're not getting a regular period every month, you're not having that monthly detox. So the, the hormones keep elevating. So like I said, the first focus is, and in, sometimes in Western medicine, what they will do is they will put people on PCOS on the pill. And oh, yeah. this, is, this is not my favorite answer. However, I have in some cases had had people take two weeks of progesterone just so we can get a bleed so we can try to jumpstart ovulation. I often like to do it with herbs and other things, but in cases where we can't get a bleed because it's super important to bleed. So, and I, I find that the testing becomes a little bit easier when we have had a period at some point recently. So we can know, okay, you bled on this date. We're going to test you, you know, 10 days after, so we can look at your ovulation hormones and go from there. So, so I, I know that might not, that's not exactly what you asked me, but I feel like that's the most important thing in my mind is getting getting a bleed going. Of, of course, of course, because if you're not bleeding and there's no cycle, you don't have any type of timeline. So it would be hard to know where estrogen is or progesterone is because it's not moving. Exactly. Now, so what what is what is easy to test when you don't have a period are those androgenic hormones. So the testosterone. That was my next question. Yeah. DHA. And the androstenedione. And, and when those are elevated, um, there are specific herbs and specific liver things we can do to reduce those while we're trying to get the period going. So typically, if there's a problem with estrogen, progesterone, and ovulation and that issue, I want like I want to make sure we get a bleed. If the problem mostly lies in that androgenic pathway, we can be working on that without like we can test any time because typically those those hormones don't usually cycle in a female. They do a little bit, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was actually the issue in Laura's case. She did not have a period, and she did have elevated testosterone. Now, when you look at testosterone and you look at DHEA, and again, lab ranges are going to vary, but what do you consider elevated? Does it have to be out of the lab's range? 
are you looking at serum testosterone? So there's so many different ways you can test. That's the other thing. Oh, that's a really good point. Yes. Uh, let's talk about serum first, and then we could talk about urine and saliva if you do those. Yeah. So I typically will start with serum. Insurance covers it. I like to start with labs and insurance covers. In most cases, you know, if it's even slightly out of, or even at the high end of range and someone's having symptoms. So here's where we want to look at, you know, if someone's having you know, male pattern hair growth, they're having some insulin resistance, they're having some of those symptoms that kind of correlate with the androgenic and that testosterone isn't out of range, but it's on the higher end of the range, then we're definitely going to treat that. Um, so it, it does your most cases, however, I will see that testosterone will be elevated out of the normal range when we're testing serum testosterone. Yeah. Now, what about DHEA? Are you testing that? Or are you testing the DHEA sulfate? I usually will test DHEA sulfate. It's a little bit of a better marker. And that one, I find that to be elevated in a lot of my patients with the androgenic PCOS stuff going on. Um, and then, so the other thing that I always test as well is I want to get some sort of picture of what's going on with cortisol. And I know we're not focusing too much on blood sugar today. However, if someone's AM cortisol is really, really high or their cortisol throughout the day is super, super high, that's going to put a lot of stress on the liver. High cortisol will tell the liver to break down what we call glycogen, which is stored sugar. So whether you're eating sugar or not, when your cortisol is high, your blood sugar is going to get elevated. So, you know, so I mean, you asked earlier, what are some of the other underlying root causes? Sometimes stress can be an underlying root cause. If your cortisol is consistently elevated for months at a time, it's going to cause a rise in your, um, you know, your, your blood glucose levels, which can then start to mess with some of the, uh, these other issues. And cortisol will also, sometimes if the body is overproducing cortisol, it can, the body will steal from some of the other hormonal pathways and push it down the cortisol pathway, which can lead into other hormonal imbalances. So I also like to make sure that there's some sort of, we've tested some sort of cortisol to tell us what's going on in that pathway. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of stress and cortisol, what is it not at the root of, right? Well, totally. It's definitely, it's, and this year in particular, it's been, you know, people's cortisols have been elevated, but I think sometimes people forget, or sometimes people don't know that cortisol, literally one of its main functions is to elevate your blood sugar. If you haven't eaten in a, in a day and a lion starts chasing you, your body will start flooding the system with cortisol and adrenaline. One of its first jobs is to break down that stored sugar in your liver so that you can have the energy to run. So like I said, even if you haven't eaten, and I have some patients that eat a perfect diet and they eat no sugar and they've got insulin type resistance going on, their A1Cs are elevated and they're like, what is going on? I don't eat any sugar, but their stress levels are through the roof. And we have to talk about, you know, that, that that's what we have to work on in this case is we've got to reduce his cortisol levels because that's what's triggering the, the glucose to go up. Yeah. And that's such an important connection. And you're right. It's not talked about nearly enough. Um, now, if someone does have the elevated androgens, what are some of the things that people can do to support that? I know you mentioned liver. So let's talk about that a little bit, the breakdown of it. And you also mentioned that there are some herbs that you use to help to support that and bring on a period. There's a couple things. I mean, I have a variety of options to use in natural medicine. There's a lot of, so it, it'll kind of depend on the person, how they like to take things. Are they good at taking supplements? So they'd rather do it in food, but there's something called diindolmethane, and we call it DIM, which I'll use frequently to help. And it helps phase two conjugation. So it helps the liver pull out most hormones. So it works with estrogen as well as testosterone. We can also, I sometimes will use a little bit of an herb called milk thistle, which just helps. It's a kind of a tonic for the liver. It'll help speed up the liver's breakdown of things. And then eating 
cruciferous vegetables. So broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, all of those, those are going to really help that phase two conjugation or again, breaking down the hormones in the liver. I also use something called N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to something called glutathione, which you can take, you can take that in pretty high doses. It's actually a wonderful thing to take right now. It's really great for lung health. It's great for breaking up mucus. It's amazing for the liver. So I sometimes will have some of my patients with PCOS take that. And then a lot of people will take inositol, which helps the liver as well. I find a lot of my patients with PCOS come in already on that because they read it on the internet. I know this helps. And, and it's funny because I don't, usually I keep people on it, but I don't often put people on it. There's a lot of decent research on it. Um, and I guess I will say most of my patients are already on it. So it's part of their protocol. It's so funny that you say that because I feel the same way. A lot of people come to me on it and when we look at the arsenal of things, this certainly wouldn't be my first choice and something that I would do. Yeah, it's never my first choice either. Yeah. But I don't I don't think it's harming anyone. I I've, I have a lot of cases where people are diagnosed PCOS and I, I typically don't put them on. I still get results without it. So I think it's not a bad thing to take. It's, you know, I think if, if you're someone who's on a budget and you're trying to figure out what, what you should spend money on, that wouldn't be my, I wouldn't go blow your budget on inositol. But I, I think there's a lot of things you can do diet-wise. One of the, sometimes one of the underlying causes of liver issues is that if someone is constipated, the liver will get backed up. So, and I can't tell you how many times I've diagnosed celiac disease in someone who just has mild constipation and the constipation is then slowing down their liver and then their hormones are messed up. And then when we cut, have them cut out gluten because they have celiac or even just a gluten sensitivity, they start going to the bathroom more regularly, which means the liver can work a little bit better, which means the hormones can be balanced and then stuff will regulate. So I have several patients I'm working with right now who've been trying to get pregnant and they were given kind of a mild diagnosis of PCOS. It was kind of like, ah, we don't really know what to do with you. Here's PCOS. You know, we'd, we'd like to put you on the pill, but you, you know, two of these patients really wanted to get pregnant. And both of them ended up having, one had celiac, had no other symptoms other than mild constipation. She maybe, you know, she would go to the bathroom every other day and a little bit of fatigue. And she's been off of gluten for a month. And she just emailed me yesterday and said, she's pregnant. She'd never gotten pregnant before. So sometimes, you know, yeah. So sometimes there's a, a, a diet factor that's causing the digestive system to be a little bit slower, which as I said, then will back up the liver and then the liver doesn't have what it needs to do in order to break down whatever hormone is elevated and needs to be broken down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just so important to remember how everything is so interrelated. You can't look at one thing without looking at the rest of the body. And that's really the beauty in you know what you do and just more of the functional approach because we're not taking things in isolation. We're looking at it together. Now, with some of the other hormones, you know, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about getting things to detox and working on the liver. Now, what if someone has elevated DHEA? Is that part of the same cascade um, related to cortisol? Or are there other things that you find it's related to and any specific herbs or nutrients that you use for that? So elevated DHEA, it's kind of, a, it's, an, it's an odd one. I have a couple cases where that's the only, like the people don't have this one woman, she doesn't really have too many symptoms and her DHEA is slightly elevated, but her cortisol tends to run a little low. So I, I use in my general population, I use DHEA as a little bit of an adrenal marker. If it's on the lower end, I'm usually like, oh, your adrenals need a little bit of help. So when it's on the higher end, I think that the body for whatever reason is shunting towards DHEA. And I don't actually have a really great answer for you on that one. Um, I'm still kind of trying to figure out the best, the best way 
to deal with that. Mo- in most cases, if someone has PCOS and their DHEA is elevated, something else in that androgenic pathway is also elevated. What I typically see. I don't. Do you see that when you are working with patients? I do. I do. But I also have a few cases, exactly like you're saying, where DHEA is one of the only things that's high, and testosterone is normal, and surprisingly, cortisol is not off too. Because I also think when DHEA is high, we would expect cortisol to be off in some way, but in those cases, it's not. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I typically, what I have done with the patients of mine that look like that is I just, I work on basic stuff. I make sure that their bowels are moving. I make sure that they're exercising. We work, we work on diet and one gal, hers just, I, hers just might be elevated. I mean, she, right now she has no symptoms. She's so I'm really big on just for you guys that are listening. You know, I think there's our bodies have, I call them your body benchmarks. So, you know, your energy, what is your energy level? How are you sleeping? What are your bowel movements like? What are your periods like? What's your sex drive like? And those are kind of these markers for you to know how is your health, like how is your body? It's like a check-in for you to do. And usually when patients are sitting down in my office, I'm going through this like body benchmark list. Okay, how's this going? How's this going? And if things are really good, if there's one tiny elevated hormone, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be too obsessed with if, if the body's functioning well. Do you know what I mean? If there's some crazy symptom and the DHA, then I'm definitely going to treat it. Um, but typically, you know, sometimes labs take a little bit long. Like when you're working on something, sometimes certain numbers take a little bit longer to come back into range. Or there is sometimes the case where that might be normal for someone, you know, we're having because the reference ranges that we have on labs they're, you know, they're a guideline. They're not, I mean, most people fall within them, but I've had some patients, it's kind of like cholesterol. Sometimes people have familial history of slightly elevated cholesterol and, you know, they eat a perfect diet, their heart's totally fine, but their cholesterol is 210, you know, and it should be under 200. Do we, do we put them on a statin for that? Usually not because so, so there's, there's a, I always like to tell people that I'm, I am more focused on how you're feeling and what, what your body's telling you through your everyday symptoms, through your periods, through your bowel movements, through, you know, your appetite, through how your weight's doing. That's, that has weighs heavier in my clinical assessment of you than the numbers. The numbers are obviously important, but what's going on in the actual physical presentation is way more important. Of course, of course. Now, when someone does get a period and perhaps maybe they get it after doing some of the treatments to jumpstart ovulation, or maybe with the PCOS that they have, they get a period, but it's not regular and there might be an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you want to see in terms of the balance of those two? So, yeah. So what we want, so if you are starting to get a period again, what we want to see, again, I touched on this earlier, is in the first half of your cycle, estrogen is going to be the predominant hormone. And it's the peak of estrogen, which then causes your ovulation hormones to spike mid-cycle. So FSH and LH will go up, which will trigger ovulation. The egg gets released. And then if the egg is not fertilized, we have something produced called the corpus luteum, which that will then start producing a bunch of progesterone. So then in the second half of that cycle, estrogen is supposed to fall off and progesterone is supposed to rise. It should peak around day 21. And then it starts to fall off in that, you know, and that's the falling off of estrogen, which actually causes us to get a bleed. So I typically, in someone with a pretty normal 28 day cycle, I like to run, I like to look at estrogen um, progesterone ratios on day 21 of their cycle. Now, if someone tells me that, so here's where things get a little bit individualized. If someone is like, I feel great. And then on day 24 of my cycle, I feel horrible and I want to kill someone. I'm going to want to test them on day 24. You know, if they're having crazy symptoms on a certain day of their cycle every month, which is pretty common. So for you guys listening, if you don't already chart your cycle, even if it's erratic, 
really important to chart it because you might start noticing, hey, four days before I get my period, I get really bloated or I get a pimple or whatever it is. It's your it's it's a clue to a practitioner to figure out what's going on. So the more information that you can kind of keep on yourself about your symptoms, the the easier it is for us to do our jobs. I always find usually around day 21 and someone with a, a regular cycle is the optimal time to test that estrogen and progesterone. Um, now, if we're looking at, we want to look at ovulation, if we're trying to get pregnant, I typically will have people test early on, like in that follicular phase. So sometime between day three and day seven, and I'll also have them test around day 21. So we can get, okay, what's going on? Are they making like are they ovulating? Are we, are we getting a, enough of an estrogen spike to have FSH and LH? And then I want to know what's happening in that second half of the cycle. And that's can be useful whether you're trying to get pregnant or not. We can just make sure that you're cycling complete. Now this, this I'm talking about blood serum. So this is, and this is typically labs that insurance will cover. There are tons of other testing options. There's a test called the Dutch test, which is phenomenal. Love the Dutch. It's out of pocket. It's you know, Does insurance cover it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I think people could probably submit, but they don't cover it directly. But yeah, it's a, it's a few hundred dollars and there's several different tests, but it's it's saliva and urine. And so um, you can get sometimes a little bit more. This one, the Dutch test is pretty interesting to find out because there are multiple different types of estrogen and the dust chest will actually test, okay, you've got, you know, a really high level of this particular estrogen. And so we can, it can, it just gives us a little bit more information about how we can help your body to break down certain hormones or what ratios are off. Um, so if, you know, and I, I typically will start with labs that insurance will cover. We'll see if we can end symptoms and we'll see what we can do with that. And if we can't make any headway, then I will recommend someone go and spend the money on, on the Dutch testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I find and wondering if you're finding that also is, especially if people have longer cycles, is if they don't have that nice progesterone release and that nice increase. And so there's, even though they have some progesterone, there's just not enough and they have somewhat of an estrogen dominance. If that's the case, what are some of the things that you do? So here, so you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned like if someone's not getting, if progesterone is not rising, that's sometimes you can get what we call, like it, it looks like an estrogen dominance, but it's, it's not a typical estrogen dominance is your progesterone is normal and your estrogen is way too high. And in that case, we just do things to speed up the liver breakdown of estrogen. But when the problem is, is if estrogen is kind of normal, but progesterone is under, like we're not making enough progesterone. Typically I don't like to do too much liver detox there because I don't want to detox more of the progesterone. Do you know what I mean? Like I want to, so, and, and typically in that case, I will use herbs in this from day 14 to day 28. I will use progesterone boosting herbs. In some cases, if those don't work and I'm working with, you know, someone's um, Western doc, we might use progesterone in the second half of the cycle or throughout the cycle, depending on where the numbers are. Um, but I really like the herb Vitex. Um, it helps the ovaries produce more, more progesterone. But the other- do you usually use Vitex only day 14 to end of cycle or do you use it all month long? Depends on what's going on. Um, sometimes I'll use it only in the second half of the cycle. I find it, it, again, it depends like on if someone's first half of the cycle is pretty great. Then I usually will have them just be there. And I, I really just want the body focused on making progesterone in the second half of the cycle. But the other thing I'll do in this case is I'll support the adrenals because typically in most of the women that I see, I see a lot of women that have high stress. So usually the reason their progesterone is low is their progesterone is getting shunted via pregnenolone into cortisol. So in that second half of the cycle, the body might be making it, but their adrenals are so tapped out 
the adrenals can't make enough cortisol. So the adrenals start stealing from the progesterone stores and the body is shunting the progesterone over to cortisol. So I, I typically will have people on a common protocol for me will be people will be on adrenal support all month. And then for the second half of the cycle, I will be giving them something to tell the body, Hey, you need to make a little bit more progesterone, but then we want to make sure that when they're when the body's making that progesterone, that it doesn't get stolen over, doesn't get converted back over into cortisol because um, that's what the body will do if, if you're under a lot of stress. So, and I, I like to talk to my patients about, you know, if you are having a regular cycle and you're keeping track of it, you know, that particularly that day 21 or from day 18 to day 25, you know, you might want to build in a little extra rest for those days. If those days are typically when you have your worst symptoms and you're feeling tired or you typically your body is telling you, I need, I need a little extra rest. So you might not want to hit the gym as hard those days, or you might want to cut back on, um, or you might want to sleep an extra 20 minutes in the morning or go to bed a little bit earlier, something that can help your adrenals build a little bit more cortisol, because that will ultimately help the progesterone stores in that second half of the cycle. What you're saying is so important. And I think so many people miss this, you know, we all know, obviously the importance of stress and how you know, what a big role it plays on everything. But I don't think people think about it in terms of their cycle in specific days. And that's such a good idea to then be mindful. And like you said, get more sleep, do more breathing, more yoga, meditation, you know, not exercise so much, which I know is an odd thing to say, but a lot of people don't realize when you over-exercise, right? That's stress. Yeah. Oh, it it totally can be stress. If you guys are interested in this, I have a, if you go to my website, I have a a webinar that I teach called the ultimate stress reset. And I talk all about cortisol and how it plays with all the different hormones. And, but I was just going to mention that when you have a normal cycle and I, I track my cycle and keep track of, I always on day 21, it's my most tired day of the month. And so I, when I plan events or I plan, you know, if I know I need to be really focused on something, I don't schedule things on day 21 of my cycle. I just, I'm looking at like, nope, that's day 21. I'm going to say no to those things. I'm going to maybe not work as long hours. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to, and so if you, if you have a regular cycle, you can start to kind of play into your own, your body's natural rhythm. And everyone's a little bit different. Some people will say, yeah, I feel really irritable. And then when I start getting my period, when I start bleeding, I feel amazing and I have all this energy. And so if, if you have a regular cycle, you can say, oh, okay, my cycle should be coming this weekend. This is when I should, you know, plan to clean out my closet or plan to do a big project. Or, you know, I think, I think as women, you know, the more knowledge you have about your cycle and what's going on, the more you can use it to your advantage, you know, and not, not let your PMS ruin your week. You can be like, okay, I'm going to, that's going to be my day where I'm not going to feel so good. I'm going to build in some extra self-care that time. I'm constantly talking to my patients about this because again, I think, you know, this stress issue, it it directly lowers progesterone, but it also, like we mentioned earlier, it's going to mess with blood sugar. This is going to, this is going to mess with your insulin resistance. It's, it can, you know, start to mess with liver stuff. It, you know, elevated cortisol can for long periods of time will affect every system in the body. So again, building in that self-care times that you're spending where you're not in that fight flight will help everything essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, for sure. Just oversimplify it. Yeah. So <laughs> for sure. Now let's talk about blood sugar a little bit. I mean, in Laura's case, she was eating perfectly and she was managing, uh, you know, stress, but for a lot of people, they may understand blood sugar to some degree, but they may not know all the ins and outs. So what are some tests that people can run to see if blood sugar is an issue for them? 
So obviously, you know, typically when you get regular blood work done, you'll have what we call a comprehensive metabolic panel, which will have your fasting blood sugar and so your fasting glucose. And that's a nice little snapshot. It doesn't always give us the full picture. You also want to make sure you have your hemoglobin A1C levels checked, which is it's something that it's a little flag on your red blood cell that allows us to kind of see what your average fasting blood sugar has been or just your average blood sugar. And so if that's elevated or even just slightly elevated, so normally we want it to be under around 5.5 when it gets creeping up 5.6, 5.7, we're kind of in this pre-diabetic. And then if it gets over 6.5, they will typically diagnose you with insulin resistance. Um, so you want to check that. I also will check people's fasting insulin because I want to see what's going on with their insulin production as well. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I think conventionally this is not checked unless someone sees an endocrinologist or some type of a specialist. So tell us, what is it? what does insulin do? What does it mean? And where do you want to see it in a blood test? Yeah, so insulin's purpose. So let's say that you were to drink a sugary drink, right? You're going to have glucose is going to get flooded through the bloodstream. It's going to be floating around, you know, in your bloodstream. But where we want glucose is we want it to get inside the cells because glucose is what gives us energy. So for right now, we're thinking of glucose as a positive thing, right? We need glucose in its basic form to give us energy. So glucose cannot get inside a cell until this little molecule called insulin binds to the cell first. So insulin will bind to the cell. And once insulin is bound, then the cell can receive sugar or can receive glucose. So what happens is if you're, ha if you're eating too much sugar, your blood sugar levels are really high and the cells have enough sugar, the body, the cells will actually down, what we call downregulate the production of that insulin receptor. So what will happen is you will have more insulin floating around in your bloodstream. So typically when there's an insulin resistance picture, the fasting insulin will go up. And so this is an interesting concept, this downregulation of the receptor. It's, I, I like to think of it, it's almost like your, these cells are like a house and if someone was soliciting at your door all the time, trying to sell you something, you would eventually put up a sign that said no solicitors and you wouldn't open your door because you get sick of it. This is essentially what's happening in the cells. They're saying, we've got so much freaking glucose, we don't need any more. So they stop, they stop receiving the insulin so that glucose can't come in. So again, and if, if your pancreas is working properly, because we're talking more, this is kind of type two diabetes, usually the pancreas is making, pancreas makes insulin. So if insulin production is normal, but we have cells don't have the receptor for insulin, you're going to see a spike in fasting insulin or even insulin after eating. Um, someone with type one diabetes, typically they don't make insulin. So that's why they have to take insulin in order for them to receive it. So they'll, they'll have, that's a whole other issue that we're not really, typically with PCOS, we're seeing what we call insulin resistance. So the, the body makes insulin, but the cell is no longer making the receptor to, to receive it. So then you can't receive insulin. And then if you're eating sugar or you're stressed and the body's breaking down stored glycogen to, to increase sugar, the sugar can't get inside the cells, which can cause fatigue, it can cause weight gain, it can cause a whole host of other issues. So um, so what we ultimately wanna do when we're trying to work on blood sugar is we wanna make, we wanna make those cells make more of the insulin receptors so that insulin can bind and the glucose can get inside the cell because we don't want glucose floating around the blood sugar, or excuse me, the bloodstream. And we don't want insulin floating around too much in the bloodstream. We want them to do their job to bind to the cells of it. So one of the easiest ways to do this is exercise increases the production of insulin receptors. So going for a walk after a meal, and it doesn't have to be intense exercise, but walking is the best 
easiest free way to to improve your insulin resistance. Um, and then there's a lot of research on fish oil improving insulin resistance. I use some homeopathics that kind of remind the body, hey, body, you need to be making this receptor. But usually fish oil and adding an exercise are the two are the two big ones that that can be beneficial. Mm-hmm. And what about diet in those cases? Oh, diet is obviously super important. So keeping blood sugar balanced. So if you've got, you know, if your body is not accepting insulin, we do not want to have spikes in blood sugar or dips in blood sugar. We want to try to keep the blood sugar as neutral as possible. And one of the reasons why we don't want to dip in blood sugar, because some people think, oh, I just won't eat. I'll just skip a meal. But that's actually worse for you because what happens is you skip a meal and when your blood sugar goes down, that triggers your stress response. So then cortisol goes up, which then tells the liver to break down stored sugar. So even though you fasted, you now have elevated sugar. So it's really important to be eating, you know, if you're struggling with this, working with a nutritionist is great to figure out what's the best, you know, for your lifestyle. I have this little tagline. I thought you need to feed your needs. So you need to figure out what are my, what are my metabolic needs? What do I need to be putting into my body in order to keep my blood sugar, you know, stable. So I don't have highs or lows. We want to keep things as kind of as calm and steady as possible. So we don't upset the stress system and we don't, you know, we don't over, over sugar regulate. Right. And that keeping blood sugar stable, especially monitoring the lows is also so important that people don't talk about enough because so often people will say, oh, I have a blood sugar issue. Let me just stop eating carbs altogether. You know, and it can work for some people and it does work well for some, but for others, I think that it causes that drop, which then creates the stress. Do you agree? Well, exactly. Oh, I totally agree. I think that, and I will, I will say that I find this a lot when you're trying to come up with a diet that works for you, the number one rule I tell my patients when we're trying to figure out, and I oftentimes, I want people to to feel good about the diet, that they're, the, the diet plan that we've come up with. If it's stressing you out, we got to find a different diet plan. Like if, if we're saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I can see in my patient's eyes, they're like, this is, this is causing them more stress than that because that in and of itself is going to make the whole system worse. So, um, so you, when you do make diet changes, I like to have people make small changes. You know, we do baby steps. We make small things. We, you know, if, if, if you're in a space where you can overhaul your diet and make all the changes that you need to do, and that's not stressful to you. Awesome. But if thinking about even making one little change gives you anxiety, then we just, we have to go slow because like I said, the, the stress being one of the underlying issues, uh, you know, if, if, if you're a really stressed out person and you you've never really focused on your diet before. And you go see a doctor and they say, okay, I want you to cut out gluten and sugar and dairy and alcohol. You're probably gonna have a panic attack. So, so we need to, we need to, I always say that I like to meet patients where they're at, you know, we want to meet you where you are. We're going to, we're going to take baby steps so that we make sure that you're, you feel empowered about your diet plan. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, keeping blood sugar stable, super important. And it's, I always tell people it's, you need to find the diet that works for you and that works for the time in your life. Because sometimes I get people that come in, they're like, oh, when I was in my 20s, you know, eating the paleo diet was great. I just cut out all carbs and it was awesome. But now they're, you know, in their late 30s and they've got kids and they're working and paleo diet might not really be a feasible, it might not be the best thing for them. Like you mentioned, sometimes cutting out carbs is great. Sometimes cutting out carbs is more stressful to people. You might need a little bit of, you know, if, if you're working and your brain is working, sometimes you need a little bit of glucose. We just need to make sure you have the protein to back it up. So um, and again, here's where working with a nutritionist who really can understand what your needs are is really important. So I, I think that's the, my main message would be, you know, if this is something you're struggling with and you're feeling overwhelmed by how do I figure out what's best for me, work with some, you know, have someone help you with this. 
because they can say, okay, I, I understand what's going on. I see your labs. I see your picture. Here's a diet that, you know, is I'm like, and let's work on it together. But here's a diet that we can, you know, we know is going to address your symptoms. It's going to help with your lab numbers and it's not going to be too stressful for you. Absolutely. I can't agree more. It's all about looking at the whole picture and just working everything in. Yeah. Dr. Kenny, this has been so helpful. You are such a wealth of information. It was so good to hear more about the hormone detox and the liver aspect when it comes to PCOS, because that's not talked about nearly enough. And then of course, all of the other hormones and the balance. Now, for those that want to connect with you, how can people find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. I'm probably the most active there. So I'm at Dr. Kinney on Instagram and I'm at Dr. Kinney ND on Facebook. I've got videos on there. Like I said, if you want to go to my website and download the ultimate stress reset webinar, I talk a ton about the cortisol connection and how it, you know, kind of plays into all this stuff. It's, it's about 45 minutes. It's people love it. So it's free. You can get it on my website, which is draaronkinney.com. Yeah, I'm going to post a link to it in the show notes so people can go um, to it. And I am launching a podcast that starts next month, so on January 11th. So if you want to tune into that, I'll be talking about all kinds of different topics and bring on other guests. So please look out for that. That's great. What's the name of your podcast? The Dr. Kinney Show. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. I really appreciate all of the information, your expertise, and um, I hope to connect with you soon. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. Have a good one. As you just heard, there are many factors that all come into play when dealing with PCOS. For Laura, the stress component was a biggie. And remember, stress is not just emotional, but it's also physical. So what we did is we started looking at her food. We first looked to see if she had any food sensitivities, and she had a few. She came up really high for dairy, corn, and oranges. So we took those things out of her diet. And then we worked on balancing her meals so that her blood sugar is balanced. And as you just heard, there's a big component between insulin resistance and insulin and blood sugar support in general and the PCOS connection. So that was important. But also there is a stress connection because when blood sugar is off balance, that blood sugar dysregulation is a huge physical stress on the body. So I worked with Laura to make sure that her meals were balanced. We worked on making sure she has a protein with all of her meals and that she does not have a carb on its own. So if she was having a good starch, like a sweet potato or brown rice or quinoa, we would balance that with some type of a protein or a fat and ideally both. It's also important to remember that when there's issues with blood sugar, fruit is considered a carb as well. And even though it's natural, there is sugar. So I recommended that Laura always balance her fruit as well. So instead of just having some berries for a snack, we would have them with some nuts or we would mix them in a smoothie with some protein powder so that that is also balanced with either a protein, a fat, or both. Along with this, we also added PS150, which is phosphatidylserine, and that helps to lower cortisol to help with the stress component and worked on a lot of different mind-body exercises. We did breath work, we did meditation, we did a body scan, and all of these things are very helpful in managing stress from that perspective. Then we worked on her liver to make sure that she was processing out old hormones as well as old toxins. And we supported her liver with Lifton Complex from Standard Process, and that helps phase one and a little bit of phase two detox. And then we worked on the hormone excretion with calcium deglucurate. So calcium deglucurate helps to lower the beta-glucuronidase enzyme. 
And what happens is that when this enzyme is elevated, it actually slows down the excretion of hormones and other carcinogens. And we know that she was getting a lot of hormones, especially synthetic hormones from the pill, and we wanted to make sure that the old hormones come out so that her body is able to then process and balance all of her new hormones. We then added Omega Vil Ultra, which is a very concentrated fish oil, and Chastri, also known as Vitex, and that helps to support and balance progesterone. Now, I know it sounds like a lot of stuff, but believe it or not, it only took three months. And after that, Laura got her period back. Her skin also cleared up, and she was finally losing weight. At that point, we stopped the liver support, but we kept the fish oil and the Chastri for maintenance. We retested her labs, and her DHA and testosterone were now completely normal. And then we also ran her other hormones, estrogen and progesterone, on day 21 when she was cycling, and they were also in the normal range. And she was very excited, and so was I. If Laura sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them, and be sure that you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. As always, if you're dealing with health issues, please know that the answers are out there. It may be something that you haven't looked into yet, but there's almost always something that you can do. So if you're dealing with issues, please don't give up. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you on the next episode of Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.